In this edition of the Futures of Work podcast, Katie Bale spoke to anthropologist James Seusman about the future of work and his new book, Work, A History of How We Spend Our Time. This podcast was recorded live at the Bristol Festival of Ideas online. Katie kicked off the conversation by asking James, why is it important for us to look back at history in order to help us understand the future of work? Look, half the idea in writing the book was to make people start to reconsider what they mean when they think about work. You know, for all of us, we think about work mainly as our jobs and the thing we go to, the thing we commute to, the stuff we get paid to do. Um, And the truth of the matter is that historically, I mean, jobs are actually a relatively recent creation. Jobs only emerged really as a main thing in a few ancient cities and then the Industrial Revolution. Before then, people did work. Um, And what I wanted to do was extend that actually even further beyond. So the hunter-gatherer people I worked with, the Jinsmas, didn't really think in the same ways that we did about work. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have, you know, there was stuff they did to stay alive. There was stuff they did to entertain themselves. And it was really about trying to look at how this idea of work has changed and transformed over time and what that might mean for the future. Because we're in a really strange point in our history at the moment. We've got automation looming. We've got, you know, severe constraints and growth posed by primarily environmental things. You know, there's, there's, you know, the more work we do in effect, which requires using energy and so on, the greater impact we have on our climate. So I really wanted to boil it down to everything and actually start looking at what work is in a really fundamental way. And doing that, you know, reminds us one particular thing. That, you know, human beings aren't the only creatures on Earth that work, but in a very fundamental physical way, and work is a physical concept. It's about transferring energy. It's about doing something with energy. All living creatures, every single living organism on Earth works in a very fundamental way. And it's, a, it's, it's one of the few ways that actually we can distinguish between living things like bacteria and ostriches and people and hippos from dead things like or stars and rocks or even water is the very specific kinds of work living things do. Living things go about capturing energy They go out actively seeking out and capturing energy. They then do work with that energy by converting that energy, using that energy to convert atoms and molecules into cells, cells into organs, organs into organisms. And they do that. Um, They also go about using it to grow. And then finally, they do it to reproduce. They actually recreate themselves. Stars, you know, we talk about stars being alive, but actually they don't reproduce themselves. They burn themselves out into nothing. So... Work is a very fundamental thing that all living organisms do. And so you start from that base and start looking forward as to how humans have engaged with work and dealt with work and that basic energy quest that we do. And I really wanted to be able to bring that deep historical perspective all the way through to now looking at the challenge of what what do things look like in potentially a post-job world? You know, often people say, are you anti-work? I'm not remotely anti-work, but I do think that we're at a point where actually the conventional idea, the economics that we've stuck to, that creates jobs and demands we do jobs, is beginning, is really no longer fit for purpose. I mean, that's really what I wanted to do, was create that sort of destabilization of the concept, which, you know, all of us seem to intuitively have a sense of, but which we don't often engage with. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important now because what I took from the book is that you're expanding our sort of concept of work, like you say, we traditionally think about it in terms of specific jobs, but there's lots of work that's not necessarily 
value within our communities, like, you know, the classic idea of women who care for children, for example. We don't get a wage for that unless you're in specific childcare jobs. And um, so would you kind of be looking for expanded ideas of work and, and the value that that holds in society then? Yeah, and on both levels. So one of the kinds of things that we value, you know, as a society and that a society values, and we've been through this wonder, you know, this uh, pandemic has been a, you know, it sort of asks a very important question of the way we organize value in our societies. You know, why is it that we have an economic system, um, a system of effectively arranging our relationships with one another, where we actually encourage in many ways the best and the brightest in our society to become derivative traders rather than say epidemiologists, carers, and teachers, lecturers, you know, or even artists, you know, what is the sort of system of value that produces? The second thing is this, that, you know, we do have a very fundamental relationship with work. We get joy, satisfaction, pleasure. There's a long evolutionary journey that has made us these very purposeful, focused species capable of doing wonderful things. But if you think about it, lots of the things that we do, the boundary between what is work and leisure is very blurred often, you know, for example, for a chef in a professional kitchen, cooking is work. For me personally, cooking is pleasure. You know, you look at the big hobbies that people do. What do people, you know, people do these, you know, people will work for, you know, really dull jobs and have a miserable time just so that they can finance going and having a really great garden at home. And gardening is, of course, work. So people do one kind of work to effectively subsidize another. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, with the Jinwasi that I work with, the Kalahari, one of the things that happens there is we get in, you know, some of these remote areas, you get people who pay astonishingly large sums of money, um, you know, with all whatever particular weird issues they have to come out and hunt things. You know, to which the Jinwasi just find the whole thing absolutely bizarre. I mean, as they once said to me with these Austrian elephant hunters who came to pointlessly shoot a jumbo away, you know, they, they were like, what do these people do back home that they get so bored that they feel oh, I have to come all this 10,000 miles over here to go and kill something? Um, but there is this, you know, fine line between work and leisure and what brings us meaning and what brings us satisfaction. And at the moment, you know, in reality, you look at all the surveys of jobs, most people don't get that from the paid job that they do. Um, and part of it is, is that a lot of the jobs they do are, one, really boring, and two, I think a lot of people recognize deep down, actually, they don't serve any great purpose other than giving them a paycheck. Mm, yeah. I mean, yeah, and you draw from David Graeber in the text as well, this idea of, you know, bullshit jobs, as he calls them. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to think that maybe COVID-19, like you say, is going to help us reevaluate the value of certain types of work, essential jobs, you know, nursery workers, supermarket attendants who are traditionally low paid and subject to kind of precarious contracts, but now are deemed essential and necessary for the sort of continuance of our society, which traditionally have just been relegated. Um, and these, you know, well, bullshit jobs, as they might be called, are more highly paid, but not necessarily as necessary. And um, one thing that I wanted to pull you back to is because your discussion of the Jiwasi, it, it follows throughout the book, like from the beginning into the sort of final chapters. 
Um, and one thing that you do is you juxtapose our experiences and perspectives on want and scarcity with that of the Juwasi, who are described in the book as the Bushmen of Southern, Southern Africa's Kalahari. So I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on this idea of the differences between ideas of scarcity and want and what we can learn from the Juwasi when they're thinking about the future of work. Well, this is, look, this is, this is in many ways, the sort of, the book has a kind of core argument, sort of, the, this is the big thing. Our economic system, you know, you go to any bookshop or any course book, open any economic course book, chapter one, it will tell you that economics is the study of how we distribute scarce resources. And it does this by saying that, you know, all people are subject, university people are subject to solving the economic problem. That is the fundamental thing that we do in economics. What is the economic problem, they say? They sometimes call it the problem of scarcity, and it simply says that humans have infinite desires and limited means, and the reason we work is to try and bridge the gap between our infinite desires and limited means. So in other words, it means that basically as a species, we are always wanting more, we're never satisfied, we're fairly rapacious, we're quite competitive, and you know, these fundamental ideas in economics are not questioned, yet they actually underwrite every single economic institution that we have. It is the funding, you know, you look at the reams of economic writing, details, fiery graphs and wonderful calculations and so on. But it's based on these very simple assumptions about human nature. Now, the problem with these assumptions is it doesn't seem that anybody's really interrogated them very carefully, that this idea that we're all constantly obsessed with scarcity, that it's, it's a thing that drives us. Um, it hasn't been looked at very carefully. And what is really interesting is, you know, we assume we take on these beliefs because that's the nature of culture. Culture masquerades as nature. We think this is human nature. Now, what's really interesting about the Juntwasi is before I started working with them in the 1960s, so this was one of the most isolated hunter-gatherer communities on Earth. Um, and arguably the most isolated. I mean, we actually now know that they've lived continuously in Southern Africa for 300,000 years, um, or the broader genetic community of which they made. And through all that time, they were hunters and gatherers up until really the late 20th century. And when in the 1960s, anthropologists first went to the Kalahari to look at them, um, they were doing so because they thought this might be an analog that gives us some insights into how our Stone Age ancestors made, might have lived. And at the time, there was, you know, very simple, the Hobbesian idea that, you know, hunter-gatherers, that life has been this kind of eternal journey of progress towards sort of greater wealth and betterness, and that hunter-gatherers lived lives which were nasty, brutish, and short. That was a continuous battle for starvation, eat or be eaten, and kill or be killed, and, you know, thank God they discovered fun. And, and when the anthropologists went there, Richard Lee was the first guy to do a sort of careful economics what he discovered was firstly that not only were the Zumasi, despite living in a desert, extremely well nourished, but they were well nourished on the basis of only 15 hours work at a week, which supported, you know, the elderly and kids and so on. And that in fact they had an entirely different system. And they assumed, despite living in an environment which by our terms really is scarce, you know, where you know water is scarce, food is scarce, despite this, they they underwrote their economy on the assumption of um, abundance, for want of a better word. They basically had this continuous eternal confidence in the providence of their environment and their ability to be able to secure a living from it, to take 
what they could to harvest when they needed. So they didn't bother storing food. Um, they went out spontaneously when they needed food, and they only ever got what they needed for the short term. Um, and at the same time, because they had this confidence in their environment, it was sort of like, you know, if you imagine you live in a perfectly well-stocked, um, you know, massive superstore, a kind of giant, a giant warm-up, you live within it and everything's absolutely free. Of course, you're not going to be, you know, and the shelves are constantly miraculously refilled. You're not going to, you're going to extend that sharing relationship to others. So in these societies, there was ostensibly, you know, there was private property, but nobody cared about it. So, for example, things, you had know, systems of things such as demand sharing. In our society, you know, if I come up to somebody and I say, give me that, it's considered extremely rude. It's considered the gift of the giver to give somebody, and then you expect some sort of statement of debt and obligation to come back to you. In Zhenhua, well, you know, they don't use words like please and thank you. Um, and it is in the gift of the asker to ask. This demand sharing is, you know, give me, give me that. And you are obliged to give that. And what this does is it actually produces a wonderfully egalitarian space, where, which is highly individualistic, where everybody sort of effectively can tax everybody else. And, and nobody cares because effectively they consider themselves to be in this big soup. All the material needs are met. Now, half the reason that works is in the Kalahari, Desert, as I said, there's not, it's not an abundant environment by outer. You know, they need pretty Spartan lives by outer. But they have this affluence without great abundance, in a sense, that they have few wants that are easily met and so are very satisfied. So, in a sense, it's like, you know, Marshall Silence, an anthropologist, described it sort of tongue in cheek as a Zen path affluence. Um, and this is, you know, what it does show is, it, critically shows that this idea that we are obsessed with scarcity is not part of our nature. You know, it is prime evidence that, you know, this is not, and actually for most of human history, it probably wasn't. And um, so in the book, half of what I'm doing is trying to look at where our obsession with scarcity came from. And the argument in the big chunk of history that I look at is really how the transition to agriculture, which came about as a result of climate change, began to create this obsession with scarcity because agriculture involved tons of hard work and agricultural communities were much more prone to catastrophic famines and all sorts of disasters than foraging societies were. So in many ways, this is, book is an attempt to sort of try and liberate us from the tyranny of scarcity economics, partially because now we live in an era, post-agricultural era, where farmers produce, you know, 1% of people farm and they produce so much food that we actually waste 360 kilos per person a year before it even gets to our bellies. It's, you know, we live in a society of astonishing abundance and productivity. And part of the book is really an argument to say that we've got to move on from the scarcity economics. Scarcity economics ceased to be relevant with the Industrial Revolution. And we now have to get on with it and embrace a new set of economic models based on the extraordinary productivity we have. And that there's a real need for this, not only because, you know, lots of work we do pointless and the consumerism is, you know, we buy stuff and dispose of it instantly, but because there are real environmental constraints um, mm -hmm. and that our continued focus on growth and all these attitudes that develop during agriculture, have, you know, basically we, we risk sabotaging our future as a result. So that is the big argument really, is to say that actually this fundamental set of assumptions that underwrite modern economics have no basis in fact. We need to effectively address that. We need to deal with that if we're going to have a more sustainable future. Yeah. I mean, you chart 
the timeline, don't you? So this idea that, you know, for a long time work was sort of geared towards fulfilling our basic needs, so hunter-gatherer foraging, farming societies, etc. But now we're in this kind of post-industrial world where actually our basic needs are met, yet we're continuing to work more and more. So there was that idea that, you know, once we reached a certain level of automation where our basic needs were met, then people were going to work fewer and fewer hours and this idea of the kind of, you know, classic utopian future of work. Um, and one really interesting passage from the book is, I think, your discussion of the Kellogg's factory, the cereal factory, where um, the, the manager basically reduces the working hours of the workers, pays them the same, um, but finds that productivity increases. But then after a number of years, the workers vote in favour for increasing their working hours again. And the aim behind that is that they want to work more because they want to consume more. Um, but one thing that I think is really interesting in the context of now is that this occurred then, as it does now, in a context of great inequality. So, you know, there's huge inequality between working people and like the classic kind of 1%. And I guess this idea that, you know, at some point we're going to work less and reduce our working hours. The question is, is that ever really going to happen in the context of such deep and growing levels of inequality where people are kind of constantly trying to match the lifestyles of those that have more and you know how how do we kind of move past that yeah well this is this is really a fundamental thing and again it sort of goes back to the hunter-gatherers these fiercely egalitarian um, hunter-gatherers who after they did their work what did they do they actually spent their energy doing what you call work or leisure on things that pleased them and entertained them and you know, brought them happiness, whether it's making art or, you know, basically living, doing the stuff that we do that brings us brings us happiness. Now, we're in this really strange position where we're so productive now. Um, and we've had these continuous technological revolutions. And every time we've had a technological revolution, which has scoured out a particular segment of the workforce, we've been incredibly creative about finding new things for people to do. Um, and a lot of those things that people do are, as you know, using Graeber's analogy, they're kind of bullshitty jobs, although they bring their meaning and purpose and a sense of community and being, because we've organized our societies around work. Um, but the key is to be able to shift that line of thinking and to start asking, what is it that is making, you know, what is it that sustains the system whereby we feel people have to work when there's a test? effectively no work to do. Why do we need people to do something that is ostensibly pointless? And we need it because we have this whole narrative, people have to make a living, have to earn their way, the right to participate in society, you have to work, even if there's, as I say, abs abs absolutely nothing to do. And it's about recognizing that if we take a step beyond it, what is it that effectively motivates it? How do we sustain that idea? And it's sustained by effectively inequality, wanting something that you don't have. Um, and in hunter-gatherer societies, you know, they manage this by, you know, as I said, being fiercely egalitarian. So the minute anybody sort of got tried to gather more resources for themselves or even tried to gather prestige, they were just mocked. They were laughed at. It was viewed as ridiculous. You know, it's called insulting the meat. So hunters who came in with a massive great giraffe, you know, everybody loved meat, really appreciated it. And it was a big and important thing. But just to cool the hunters' hearts, as they said, to stop them getting 
ideas that were too big for their boots. They'd mock them. They'd say, this is a scrawny giraffe. It's a rubbish giraffe. You know, this is, it would be the sort of process of, you know, effectively diminishing, creating this kind of leveling effect. And I think humans have, you know, we, we've given this narrative that, you know, it's in our nature to be hierarchical. You know, for me, the evidence from hunter-gatherer societies actually suggests that we have this very visceral response to inequality. And there are two ways that we deal with it. The one way is, as we do, is we occasionally have these revolutions where we bring the whole structures crashing down and everybody's breathing equal, or we try and work our way up to it. Um, and this is in a sense where you start having these sort of aspirations towards gold-plated toilet seats and God knows what. Um, and I think really one of the ways to address, you know, our overworking in a sense, and indeed the environmental consequences, which I always go back to, um, is this idea of actually looking at means to reduce inequality, recognizing that our basic needs are met. Now, I think that's a really critical first step is to take us take that system of monetary value and begin to start breaking it down. And I think there are lots of ways that we can do that. And when you start breaking that down, you then start to create other systems of value around work, whether it's respect, whether it's enjoyment, whether it's love, whether it's prestige, whether it's, and this is where you can start, you know, why is it that, you know, if I write a book like this, do I do it for money or do I do it because, you know, I'd like to have my ideas thought about and talked about, you know, that is where the rewards lie. And it's effectively about demonetizing lots of these things because really we don't need it anymore. And this monetization of everything and this equation of monetization with reward constantly is really what's locked us into this very unproductive eternal growth cycle. Um, and that is what I think needs to change. And to do that does recognize that we have to deal with material inequality. And um, I mean, it's interesting with the Jinhuasi, when I started working with them in Namibia in 1991, they just gained independence from South Africa and apartheid had come to an end. Um, and I was discussing with some Jinhuasi about what this meant. Look, this means in Namibia, everybody is now, everybody is now equal, you equal, equal rights, equal in front of the law and so on and so forth. And, you know, one old Jinhuasi man said to me, he just said, to me, it's like, I, uh, yeah, you can say all that, but, you know, how can, how, can it, how can anything be equal when you have material inequality? And for them, material equality, this idea of demand sharing, which was the great leveling mechanism, was the precondition for any other kind of inequality. Anything else was just words as far as they were concerned. So there is this dynamic, and I think it's deep within us, and I think the more you diminish the one side, the more you get the other side coming up. So there is a sense of saying that we can create other systems of value and um, which are demonetized. And, you know, again, when I keep going back to the environment, you know, in Africa, when I talked about those hunters who come to Namibia to, you know, shoot elephants away, part of it is, is this narrative that the environment has to pay for itself in order to exist. Um, and, you know, I, I don't agree with that. Nishin Masi don't agree with it. They have to pay that. Um, but, you know, that environment deserves to exist in its own right for a whole series of other sets of value. And so really that's, that's what it's about. It's about challenging all these ideas. Great. Um, so I'm conscious of time. Um, should we read a short passage from the book? I'm sure everyone would love to hear one of the chapters. Sure. Well, it's not going to be a chapter. It's going to be a very short passage, more or less, as I said. Um, okay, I shall do my 
Jack and Ori moment. This is where I get old man like and have to put my reading glasses over my nose. Um, and the bit I'm going to read is really just a very brief um, passage from a chapter about fire. And it's in a sense, I know we're talking about the future of work today, um, but this is in a sense of understanding, you know, the chapter about fire is looking at the first great energy revolution and its relationship with work. Um, and the chapter is called Fire's Other Gifts, and I'm just going to read a page from it. Fire's other gifts. For the Junwasi, fire is the great transformer. It is generated by the gods through lightning, but can be made by anyone with two dry sticks or flints, flint once they know how. It transforms the raw into the cook, makes cold bodies warm, tempers wet wood until it is hard as bone, and it can melt iron. More than that, it transforms darkness into light and dissuades curious lions, elephants, and hyenas from harassing people while they sleep. And every dry season, wildfires blaze through the Kalahari, scouring the land of dead grass and inviting the first summer rains to fall, so ushering in a new year and new life. Junwasi shamans also insist that fire provides the energy that transforms them into the shadow world of spirits during the healing dances when they dip and dive through roaring hot flames and bathe in coals to ignite their nun, the healing force that resides deep in their bellies and that when heated, assumes control over their bodies. Were fire capable of transporting these shamans into the ancient past, they would see in its flames a vision of how by mastering it, how evolutionary ancestors reduced the amount of time and effort they had to dedicate to the food quest, and how this in turn helped stimulate the development of language, culture, stories, music, and art, as well as shifting the parameters for both natural and sexual selection by making us the only species where brains might become more sexually beneficial than raw. Then they would see how, in providing our ancestors with leisure time, language, and culture, fire also summoned into existence leisure's odious opposite, the concept of work. Now that's my passage, thank you. Thank you, James. Really interesting. Um, okay, we've got a couple of questions to go through. Um, let's get them up on the screen here. Okay, so the first question um, is again about this idea of working time and the fact that we're working more. Uh, we're asked by Andrew Kelly, uh, John Maynard Keynes predicted that his grandchildren would work just 15 hours a week. We imagine by now we would basically work Monday and Tuesday and then have a five-day weekend. What happened to this idea? Uh -huh. Well, I wrote a whole book about that, funny enough. And <laughs> Keynes, Keynes really features quite heavily in my book. And he's somebody as an anthropologist I never paid a whole lot of attention to when I was a student. But actually, the more I read of his stuff, the more I, I actually think he was a he was a wise, he was a wise, he was a wise fellow. Look. In the essay, when he predicted um, that we'd be working a 15-hour week by now, he actually sort of made the point saying that the only reason we do that is because we have this habit of work and we've got to do something. And he made this prediction, you know, he's, in, the, in making that prediction, he set out a whole series of productivity, capital growth, um, and technology thresholds, um, and said we need to 
pass those before we got there, and this would happen roughly now. And we actually passed those thresholds in the 1980s, according to learned economists who can calculate that sort of thing. And of course, we continue to work as hard as we did certainly then. Um, now, you know, Keynes said he had one particular worry about us being able to reach that particular threshold. And that worry was what he called our deep instinct to work, to solve the economic problem. So what I talked about earlier, the problem of scarcity, this obsession we have with, um, uh, with, with scarcity. Um, and he thought, as an economist did, that it was something that is genetically hardwired into. Of course, we know now from studies from gatherers that you know this obsession with scarcity is not something that's genetically hardwired into. But what he didn't estimate was the extent to which actively the culture of work. And humans as cultural beings are, you know, culture shapes us radically. And this is sort of the one thing, you know, journeys, you know, lots of anthropologists now tend to go and sort of do work in their neighborhood or nearby or this whole idea of journeying to the, you know, somewhere where people view the world very differently. And of course, globalization has made this much harder. But actually putting yourself in a place where people look and engage with the world profoundly differently makes the strange familiar and the familiar strange. It undoes all these kind of certainties, um, certainties that we that we have about, you know, how to see the world and how to engage it. And, you know, certainly, you know, working with people like the Jinsasi, it takes away the idea that you know these assumptions are real and, and you know the reason we work now is because we have this incredibly strong cultural imperative that's just been repeated through years and years this set of ethos that we've inherited and that we've built our economic and social institutions around so we all grow up in school being told hard work is good and idleness is bad and so on and these are all ideas that were very important and necessary for when we were agricultural societies just to survive. It was, you know, a rational response. We've inherited this entire architecture. Now, the problem is it's very difficult to take away this kind of economic architecture. So if you think about it, all our economic concepts around work are, you know, even the language, so words like capital and the concepts of growth all have their roots in agriculture. Capital, for example, is just a word, you know, you know, and cattle herds grew, you know. So all these things are agricultural concepts. We just kept, and we have these institutions built around them, and we haven't begun to break them down. Now, usually these things only ever break down through some kind of external forces. And you know, in the book, I speculated that probably the kind of thing that would push us towards really asking those challenging questions was some kind of environmental disaster. Um, I also speculated, and you know, maybe I get a soothsayer point for doing it. I also speculated that something like a pandemic um, might also be something that begins to unwind. And the pandemics I actually had in mind, which I, I mean, I write quite a lot about pandemics in the book because they're a feature of agricultural societies. And I was actually thinking more of a, 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 one of one of the dodgy bird flus. Um, but indeed, pandemics produce a great deal of reflection and, you know, people ask questions, partially because we have this brush with mortality and, you know, and in this part of the world, you know, it's not like this position. Honestly, death is something very distant to most of us here. And uh, it does invite us to ask big questions about how we organize our lives, how we organize our time. And I certainly hope that, you know, for all the pain and misery that this crisis has brought us, that it does bring us that reflection that starts us to ask these more fundamental questions about how we do spend our time, how we spend our energy, um, and how we might be able to do it better in future. So 
Um, and I do think that one of the things that we've got to tackle is really the way we organize our working lives and whether it is time to abandon these ideas that were right for agriculture when we were all farmers effectively, whether that's right in the post-industrial world. So I'd certainly like to see us all working 15 hours a week or jobbing for 15 hours a week perhaps, and then working on other stuff that brings us pleasure. Mm. I'm very bad at just sitting on my ass and doing nothing. So, so, you know, <laughs> I think that's I, something I, that a lot of people would agree with you on, James. Yeah. And um, we've got another question from Jeanette Plum. Um, how can we take steps towards moving away from work being the defining identity of people? That classic question of what do you do? Oh. Um, <laughs> um, well, again, actually, I mean, I'll, I'll give you some speculation on this idea. You know, there, there is a sort of model for it. Now, for my sins, I spent a few years working in a big suited office in, in London in a global multinational. Um, and, you know, in it, I, I now think of it as field work in the office. So I went straight from living with a bushman in the Kalahari to the office world, which was quite a contrast. And, but there has been one of the things I've been looking at is the, really the history of the office as a concept. And, you know, if you think about, let's take the history of, you know, most of most British cities, um, a century and a half ago, there was no such thing as big offices. And, you know, people, when people did their work, they lived in particular neighborhoods, they usually lived close to their work. Um, and those neighborhoods were often associated with whatever trade they happened to be in, whether it was making hats or being a lawyer or so on and so forth. Then you have the sort of big surge of the office in the 1950s, which came about through massive production. And in the office, everybody socialized together, engaged with one another. It became, we spent most of our time in a company of colleagues, co-workers, and all the rest. And there was that sort of core motivation. And humans are social creatures. We build networks around ourselves, 150 or so people that we associate with all the time. Um, and engage with, it becomes a sense of, it becomes meaningful, it becomes our community and our village. And for a long time, and especially in that sort of hey, heyday of the office, the sort of madman long lunch, lunch and lounge suit here, you know, for people, the office became their home. But then, of course, the flip side was the businesses started making so much money, they priced everybody up, and then people had to have these horrendous, difficult commutes, um, and their love affair with the office began to break down. Um, and we've seen that very much during this lockdown period, that some of the people who are working in particular what you call knowledge industries or knowledge roles, which is really most of us, suddenly realize that actually they don't have to surrender half their lives to a sodding commute, um, you know, which pumps lots of gas into the environment anyway, and, you know, just makes everybody basically miserable as far as I can. And if they don't have to do this, they can get on and do their jobs, but it also diminishes the idea that the office becomes the community. So really organic, you know, the amount of people who actually during lockdown started talking with neighbors, particularly in urban areas, that they've never talked to. So the different ways that we can form communities. And I certainly have a hope that, you know, if we embrace what this digital medium has brought, actually, ironically, digitization might make us closer to our physical needs. It also might enable us to completely reshape our inner city. You know, so if you think that era of the office where just to work together, people had to go into the same place. It produced these huge sterile temples to commerce, which during the day are busy full of suits and boots, but during the day, just our nights are just dead zones with a couple of miserable security guards. Imagine if we could turn those into living multi-use areas, 
Imagine if we could deflate property values that were associated with them because you no longer need to work like that, that actually people could afford to live near where they worked. And suddenly you start breathing life into urban spaces again and creating new life. And people can start living and working. So the irony of the internet might be that actually we end up getting close to the people that we live nearby and reestablishing, you know, instead of the office being a surrogate for our village, actually our village becomes our village again. And we deal with face-to-face and the real-time engagement. And you see that you see that a lot. And, and certainly I think that's one of the positive things that is coming out. I really hope that you know, think when I look at the reports on say Savile's real commercial real estate report from New York, and I see that prices are plummeting and there's more rental space up than there has been since 9-11. I'm actually filled with optimism when I see that because it gives us a chance to reimagine our cities and turn them into more vibrant, viable communities than we had before. Yeah, I mean I think that's a great way to think about the possibilities of working from home and developing new communities. Hopefully that is something that, I mean, certainly I've definitely been establishing more relationships with my neighbours since lockdown, um, really because they're the only people that you can see. Um, (laughs) We've got probably time for one, possibly two more questions. Um, So another question, this is a really popular topic actually amongst my students as well which is, what do you think of the idea of a universal basic income as a means to reduce inequality and provide a basis for more fulfilling and equitable work? Well, I, I, I've said that, I, you know, people often ask me, I mean, one of the criticisms I got with the book is that it's all history and I don't provide solutions. And I did that very much on purpose. And I'm a great believer in experimentation. I'm a great believer in we understand the problem but, you know, it's like all too often in our political lives, you expect politicians to show up with answers. We, we, we go behind, we rally behind the one who's the most, has the strongest conviction in an idea. I think there are a whole series of really brilliant ideas that we have to try out to see what works best and how they work. And we also have to be prepared to abandon them. This is, you know, if only you had bloody politicians who'd actually say, well, let's experiment with this because we have a particular set of outcomes that we want. And if we can't get there, then we don't do it. I think universal basic income is something that we have to experiment and try very, very seriously. I think it could make a huge difference. I also think, for example, we must experiment with things such as wealth taxes. I think the four-day week is an experiment that we could get cracking on immediately as well. I think there are a whole series of these experiments, and we have to be prepared for them not to work. Um, I really like the idea of universal basic income, and I, you know, it boggles my mind that in particular during this year of lockdown, that if actually you had universal basic income, you wouldn't need eat out to help out and all these other things. You know, we've all actually got enough food. Everybody would be fine. We wouldn't even need it if we'd solve the part of the university problem. I mean, imagine if you had universal basic income for adult students, we'd be able to pay their fees out of it. You know, this whole absurdity of university fees would sort of be dealt with in a single crushing blow. So I think, look, I think universal basic income at the moment, I think it's possibly the best idea that we have, and I'd love to see a serious experiment with it. There may well be unintended consequences we don't know about, but that's what you do when you do experiments. So, yes, I'm very keen on the idea. I think it's absolutely, I think it's a cracking idea, and you know, it's so obviously worth doing. And it's such a wasted opportunity that right at the beginning of this bloody crisis, instead of having complicated furlough schemes and all this nonsense, we actually didn't just wheel out 21,000 pounds a year for every adult over 18. 
and see what happens. And you know what? Funny thing is, it probably would have cost the government. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a theme definitely amongst the questions about inequality and how we kind of meet the basic needs of those who aren't uh, getting what they need from the system at present. But I think we've kind of answered that by covering the UBI. One, probably got time very quickly for one last question. Um, how does the way we work impact what we do in our free time? Ooh. Uh, uh, another great question that I'll just simply say, I have, actually, I do, I have, I have one answer. It depends on what work you do for a start. You know, there are some people on earth who are lucky enough to have work that is genuinely rewarding. And I go back to that, you know, that quote I had with the Jinwasi about the elephant hunt. You know, for Jinwasi, you hunt with stuff like this, you can see in the background. It's a thin reed bow and arrow. It's try, it engages the body, the mind, the spirit, the soul. It's an empathetic, the skill involved is extraordinary. And some work brings us great satisfaction. And if you do the work which doesn't bring you that satisfaction, then you go looking for that satisfaction out of it. Some of us look for it by at the bottom of a bottle or by smoking or God knows what. Um, others of us look at it by joining sports clubs. It's interesting that you know lots of people go out and try and gain that satisfaction that they ought to be getting from work outside of the workplace. Um, often, if our jobs are exhausting, it leaves us too tired to do anything. So we just end up being a vegetable and staring at a Netflix all night long. Um, but this is, in a sense, one of my things is, you know, when, you know, I don't believe in this idea of having less work. As I say, I struggle when I don't have something to do. But there's meaningful work. There's work that brings us satisfaction and joy. And I think we live in a world that productive enough at the moment, but pretty much everybody can actually spend their time doing what they'd really like to be able to do. And out of that, we get all the things that we need because people get joy. I mean, I'm sitting in Cambridge, like outside my window, I can see the, I can see the biomedical campus where you've got, it's full of researchers. You get absolute joy out of ferreting around through the, you know, RNA sequences of associated with COVID. It's for them meaningful and rewarding and powerful. People will continue to do that. Um, and so it is, it's, yeah, it depends on the work you do. I think, you know, the less rubbish work people do, the more they might discover that they'll do something wonderful either for themselves or for others. Perfect. Well, on that hopeful note, um, it brings us to the end of the session.